Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Thanks to everyone who has been following this podcast regularly and supporting it in all the ways that you do. Some people have been supporting this podcast financially, and I really, really appreciate that. It has helped defray the costs of the podcast. And I'm going to leave the support link in the show notes for those who really want to support the podcast that way. But it turns out that our household is doing well. The podcast is still in the red, but it's funded by our household, and our household is fine. We've actually managed to save money over the past two years, since I left my full-time job, in part, to do this podcast. So, since we don't need financial support at this time, I want to encourage listeners to give to people and causes that really need it. Many of you probably already do that, but I want to start occasionally highlighting causes that need support. For this episode, I want to highlight Christian peacemaker teams in Hebron, or Al-Khalil, in the West Bank, in Palestine. First, a quick explanation of the work of CPT. While I have personal experience with CPT, rather than try to sum up the work of CPT in my own words, I'm going to read the summary that is on the website. CPT places teams at the invitation of local peacemaking communities that are confronting situations of lethal conflict. These teams support and amplify the voices of local peacemakers who risk injury and death by waging nonviolent direct action to confront systems of violence and oppression. CPT work includes accompanying partners as they work nonviolently to defend their rights and communities, advocacy amplifying the stories and voices of those experiencing violent oppression, human rights observation and reporting, and solidarity networking, partnering with individuals and organizations to work toward change. The team in Hebron, or Al-Khalil, in the West Bank in Palestine, has lost funding during the pandemic. They recently lost a $50,000 grant. Also, in normal times, the team there works closely with Jewish and Palestinian partners, but due to the pandemic, all the international volunteers have had to leave, so the project is now being staffed by Palestinians alone. Meanwhile, they report that violence is at unprecedented levels. There are increasing settler attacks, home raids, and executions. They desperately need our support. We will send them money, and I hope some of you out there can too. A link to the CPT website is in the show notes. There is a donation button on the CPT homepage, and after clicking on that and getting to the donation page, you can write a note in the notes section that you are designating it for the team in Hebron or Al-Khalil. So thank you for considering that. And now I will get on with this episode. We've encountered the image of a fruit tree in this story three times. In chapter 3, John the Baptist declared that trees that don't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In chapter 7, Jesus talked about good fruit trees and bad ones and echoed John's declaration that the bad fruit trees will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then in chapter 12, Jesus talked about good and bad fruit trees again. Although the modern Western reader naturally interprets the symbol of the fruit tree as representing 
only individuals, the ancient audience familiar with the literature of ancient Israel would also have included a collective dimension in their interpretation. The image of trees being cut down is a common image from the prophets of empires, specifically their kings and ruling classes, being destroyed by God's judgment. And a consuming fire is also an image of judgment used often in the prophets to speak of God's judgment on the empires or Israel itself. In chapter 12, Jesus says, Either make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. It's interesting that Jesus speaks of making the tree good or bad. I can find no other expression like that in any ancient text. It's a curious expression. But if we think of a tree as the ruling establishment or government, then there is a sense in which a government is made or constructed. If it is constructed poorly, then its actions will be bad. But if it is constructed well, then its actions will be good. In this episode, we will encounter a particular kind of fruit tree that many commentators agree represents the ruling establishment at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Jesus will encounter this tree with us, and when he does, he won't just spin a parable about it, as is his usual M.O., he will engage in parabolic action. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 55 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. begin by reading verses 18 to 22 of chapter 21. In the morning, when he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing at all on it but leaves. Then he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. So Jesus curses the fig tree because it has only leaves. This always seemed unfair to me. Mark's version of the story tells us that it was not the time for figs which only heightens the feeling that this is unfair. Why punish a tree for following its natural cycle? But of course, this is a symbolic text, and the symbolism is what is important. We have already seen Jesus using the image of a fruit tree to symbolize a ruling establishment. In chapter 12, he parabolically portrayed the temple establishment as a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Now he encounters a fruit tree that is specifically a fig tree, and he causes it to wither. A withered fig tree in ancient Israelite literature symbolized judgment on national or imperial regimes. Although there are multiple images of withered fig trees or rotten figs in the Hebrew Bible as symbolic of judgment on Israel or the nations, 
One that stands out as a background for this text is Jeremiah 8.13. Speaking judgment on the Israelite ruling class, this passage reads, I will bring them to an end, says the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. A striking image resembling what is going on in this passage. No figs on the tree, and now the leaves wither. Warren Carter cites a couple of similar texts in first-century Greco-Roman literature. Suetonius writes of a withering grove of trees foreshadowing the death of Nero and the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Tacitus writes that the fig tree in the Forum, under which the wolf was said to have suckled Rome's founders, Romulus and Remus, withered as a portent of Nero's terrible reign. So a withered fig tree in both Israelite and Greco-Roman literature symbolizes judgment on national or imperial regimes. Given the context of this passage in which Jesus has just, the previous day, occupied the temple and shut down the sacrifices there, we should understand Jesus' curse of the fig tree to symbolize judgment on the ruling establishment at the temple. The text then tells us that when Jesus makes the tree wither, the disciples are amazed. Why are they so amazed? They've seen Jesus heal people and drive out demons and walk on the water. Why would this be so different? Again, this gets back to the symbolism. What Jesus is doing symbolizes the defeat of a regime, specifically the one at the Temple Mount a regime whose power seems prodigious and overwhelming to the peasants following Jesus. It's not that the disciples understand the symbolism immediately in any conscious way. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But their amazement propels the dramatic tension of this passage. It is part of the tone that the writer is setting. Jesus performs a parabolic act, making the fig tree wither, symbolically pronouncing judgment on the ruling class in Jerusalem. The ruling class in this large city that these rural peasants have just arrived at the previous day and are probably still in awe of. Jesus pronounces judgment on that city's ruling class, and the disciples are amazed. Jesus follows up by saying, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer, with faith, you will receive. Now, unfortunately, this text and the one similar to it in chapter 17 have been used by prosperity theology hucksters to make people think that God will literally give us anything if we just believe hard enough. And to be fair, that's what it sounds like to our modern ears, especially with that last line. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. Our conceptions of prayer and faith get in the way of our understanding this text. For modern Western Christians, prayer is primarily a private and personal activity and only secondarily a public activity, whereas in ancient Israel, it was primarily a public activity and often involved sociopolitical content and context. It's confusing for us because we read, for example, in the Psalms of King David praying fervently on his bed. That sounds like solitary prayer to us. 
And it's not so much that it isn't literally solitary prayer, but we have to remember that this is a king praying, and usually about danger to his regime. It is very political and becomes the very public content of the Psalms. If we go back through the Gospel of Matthew, we find that prayer has sociopolitical content and context throughout this story. Jesus urges his followers to pray for their enemies in chapter 5 and teaches them the radical revolutionary prayer in chapter 6. If you haven't listened to the episode on that one, in episode 13 I unpack the radical sociopolitical content of that prayer, traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer. As for the word faith, that often means for us modern people a cerebral belief in God and what God can do. But in the ancient world, it had a more relational meaning, which is still in use in legal language today when the law speaks of doing something in good faith. That means acting in an honest way, especially with reference to contractual obligations. In antiquity, the term faith included the idea of loyalty or faithfulness, keeping faith with someone or some group or authority or movement. New Testament scholar Paula Fredrickson explains that in antiquity, pistis, the Greek word for faith and its Latin equivalent fetus, connoted steadfastness, conviction, and loyalty. Others have suggested the translation allegiance. The idea here, then, that Jesus is communicating is that if we are persistent and steadfast in our loyalty to God and to this movement that God has sent Jesus to initiate— then God can work through us to accomplish amazing things, even the overthrow of a regime. And the overthrow of a regime is the main point here. Jesus has just in this chapter triumphantly entered Jerusalem, the national capital, and gone into the temple and driven out those working for the ruling class. Then he made a fig tree wither, symbolic of judgment on the temple ruling class, and now he talks about throwing a mountain into the sea. Given the context, both in terms of what has been happening in the story and where they are, they are in Jerusalem, the mountain that he is referring to when he says this mountain is the Temple Mount, also known as Mount Zion. He is talking about the overthrow of the regime housed on the Temple Mount. He says that it can be thrown into the sea. We've encountered this sea image in the story several times, once as the place of imperial demise. We saw at the end of chapter 8 that Jesus ordered a group of demons into a herd of pigs. The herd of pigs symbolized Roman military presence. When Jesus ordered the demons into the pigs, the pigs rushed into the sea. I explained in that episode that the sea in ancient Israelite apocalyptic literature is the place where empires come from, but when the pigs rushed into the water, it became the place where empires go to die. The temple establishment in Jerusalem was a puppet regime of the Roman Empire. So when talking about defeating the temple establishment, Jesus speaks of throwing it into the sea. The sea has become the place of destruction for the ruling regime on Mount Zion. William Telford, in his book, The Barren Temple and the Withered Tree, quotes various ancient rabbinic texts showing the phrase, uprooter of mountains 
and the image of uprooting trees to be metaphors for doing things thought to be impossible, such as defeating a great foreign army, or doing something thought beyond one's legal power, such as destroying the temple, a specific example in one of the rabbinic texts. So Telford has shown that this image of uprooting a mountain has strong connotations in ancient Israel of defeating large militaries and destroying temples. Both connotations seem to be invoked in this passage. Jesus has caused the fig tree to wither, a parabolic act of judgment on the temple establishment. Then he tells his disciples that they can throw this mountain into the sea. He says this to help them understand that they have the power to defeat the temple ruling class. Now, at the time that the author of Matthew is writing this all down, the temple has been destroyed, but not by the word and witness of Jesus and his followers. Rather, it has been destroyed by the might and power of Rome. Matthew was written 15 or more years after Rome crushed the Israelite peasant rebellion, defeating the peasant forces that had occupied the temple. It was the peasant occupation of the temple that was crushed by Rome. So then, what is the victory over the temple establishment that the author of Matthew thinks Jesus is talking about? Well, The temple in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus was the only temple for Jews in Israel, but there were many other temples throughout the empire, including in Israel and Samaria. There were temples to Augustus Caesar in Israel and Samaria. Jesus' opposition to the temple establishment in Jerusalem is not about that one temple, but about all oppressive governments and their temples. Within the Roman Empire, all temples were conduits of Roman imperial power. So Jesus' teaching that the temple can be thrown into the sea applies to all temples and to the empire itself. But there is specifically a victory over the temple in Jerusalem in this story. Jesus has just demonstrated one way to defeat the temple the previous day when he occupied it and shut down the sacrifices there. And he will occupy it again. And that is what we will look at in the next episode. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please support this podcast by giving it five-star ratings and glowing reviews. You can send questions and comments to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been episode 55 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Um.